If you're listening to the history of Vikings, you're doing so via the internet. Today's episode is sponsored by Atlas VPN, a company created to make the internet accessible and secure for everyone. From blocking malicious links, ads, and trackers, notifying you when someone is trying to steal your data, to protecting your devices and allowing you to access worldwide content on platforms such as Netflix while traveling abroad, Atlas VPN has got you covered. There are over 6 million people using Atlas VPN across the world, and you could be one of them by following the link in the description of this episode, which gets you Atlas VPN for just $1.99 a month for three years, plus a 30-day money-back guarantee. You're using the internet to listen to what I hope is your favorite history podcast. Atlas VPN was created to make the internet accessible and secure for everyone. Follow the link in this episode's description to get Atlas VPN for just $1.99 a month for three years, plus a 30-day money-back guarantee. Many thanks to Atlas VPN for sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today is going to be a really exciting episode because we're joined by returning guest, Dr. Leshik Gardella, a researcher at the National Museum in Denmark. We featured Dr. Gardella on the podcast in 2019. A lot has changed since then, uh, including... Uh, some of his work. So we had discussed sort of um, Viking warrior women, and we're going to dive into that today. But we're also going to dive into the Vikings in Poland. Now, Poland isn't a country we've discussed here on the podcast as it relates to the Viking Age. So that will provide for uh, a fascinating and insightful conversation, I'm sure. Well, Dr. Leszek Gardella, welcome back to the History of Vikings. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you back. So you've published a book, Leszek, Women and Weapons in the Viking World, Amazons of the North. And I alluded to the fact that we'll be discussing the Vikings in Poland as well. You've completed another book. It's publishing is in the process, simply titled The Vikings in Poland. I'd love to dive into both of those subjects, but let's start with women and weapons in the Viking world. Um, I think this is something we've discussed before, but it's it's worth kind of bringing up again. Um, introduce us to a a woman in the Viking Age, if you if you would. For those unfamiliar with the role of a woman in the Viking Age, what do we know? We know quite a lot these days, I think, um, and we know quite a lot because the archaeology has has given us a lot of information over the last several decades or so about women's lives and attitudes to, to the world around them. 
And we also know quite a lot about them from um, all kinds of textual sources, from, from the sagas, from um, continental sources written in a variety of languages like Latin, Arabic, and so on. Um, and of course, we also have stories about mythological women or supernatural women, and these are preserved in, in the so-called Eddas, the poetic Edda and, and the prose Edda. Um, but what can we say about women in the, in the Viking Age specifically using all these, all these sources? Um, we can certainly say that they played very prominent roles in, in the society. And I think today we can no longer see them as sort of, as, as the old scholarship would like to see them as sort of appendices to men. They were uh, individuals in their own right, capable of practically everything that men could, uh, could do back, back in the day. Although there were certainly some, some restrictions. Um, so what I, what I did in the, in the book titled uh, Women and Weapons in, in the Viking World, I focused on one aspect of women's lives in the past, and that is their associations with weapons. Um, but of course, they, they, they also did other things. They, they were not only in one way or another involved in the sphere of war, but they, they also acted as, as, uh, as traders, as merchants, as craftspeople. They, they, they certainly were involved in the, in the production of probably all kinds of objects, um, especially the sphere of textile production was, uh, was, was, a, was a very strong um, female domain, perhaps not exclusively female domain, but women were certainly playing the, the first fiddle here in, in, this, um, in this activity. Um, and of course, in looking at um, textual sources, we also can see that um, the, the production of textiles or textiles broadly understood um, had a lot of interesting symbolic or magic connotations. And that's, of course, something that I'm, I'm very interested in. Um, yeah, so, um, so to, to, to sum this up, women were central to Viking society. Now, is it fair to say, Leszek, that women had more rights, they were more respected in Viking Age society, uh, Viking Age Scandinavian society than contemporary, uh, let's say, medieval European uh, communities? That's, that's a really good question, actually. Um, I don't suppose there were major differences between these societies. Um, I, I have the benefit of being able to read a, a number of European languages and, and as a Slavic uh, archaeologist, I also know the Slavic world very well. Um, I, don't, I don't see so many differences between, of course, these worlds were all different, Slavic, Viking and Baltic and so on. But, but when it comes to the, the society and how people lived, how they, what they could do, how they understood the world around them and so on, they were very, very similar, um, both in the sort of pre-Christian pagan period, but also in, in the time after the conversion. Uh, the difference here is how how do we know this or how can we know all this? And uh, and in the case of Scandinavia, we simply have better sources or more sources. We have uh, we have texts. 
Um, so these texts can 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 illuminate certain things and and, and can can reveal certain subtleties. Um, in contrast to, for instance, the the Slavic world, where where the corpus of sources written in vernacular languages is is very limited, and most of the things we know about the Slavs from uh, from the Viking Age comes from external. Uh, observers, travelers, um, uh, cl Christian clergy, and so on. So for Scandinavia, we have very good texts uh, that we can use, and we also have pretty good archaeology. Um, for instance, when it comes to objects that are sort of conventionally associated with women, there's there's quite a lot of them in 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 archaeology in the archaeological material, both within uh, settlement sites, but also in special contexts like uh, like silver hordes, and also in in the funerary records, so in in graves. Um, so yeah. So Leszek, you know, let's talk about the role of women as it relates to the uh, concept of warfare. You know. I mean, the the concept of a shield maiden, you know, this idea of a, a Viking woman, Scandinavian woman, who's um, maybe not full time role, but, you know, one of the roles that she played in her life had to do with literally taking up arms and uh, fighting against enemies on a battlefield. You know, is that outlandish? Is that something that you believe could have happened, even if on a small scale? What was the role of women as it related to warfare? Mm hmm. Um, I believe that this was probably a marginal uh, thing, female participation or active participation in, in warfare. But I also believe that th there is space for, for this kind of um, activity and for this kind of vision of the Viking Age, um, especially in times of, um, of very serious um, conflict or very serious uh, tensions in, in uh, society where simply people are left without a choice. They have to defend themselves, they have to defend their property, they have to defend their, their loved ones. Um, and what I, what I did in, in studying this topic and in writing uh, Women and Weapons in the Viking World, I looked not only at, uh, at the archaeology of Scandinavia and the, the textual sources that pertain to Viking Age Scandinavia, but I also looked at comparative material from practically all around the world. Uh, and that, that proved to be very illuminating in, in kind of trying to understand why women may have reached for weapons uh, in those different societies. Um, and one of, the, one of the books that I found really inspiring and relevant um, was a book about um, female transvestites in, uh, in the Netherlands in the early modern times. And you may think, well, wh what is the connection here? Well, the, the connection is actually quite, uh, quite strong because during that time in the early modern period, uh, the Dutch Republic was almost an empire, uh, using ships um, to travel all the way to India. And it was also a, a, a very divided society. And that book that I read, um, that I used as, as, as my source for this world, um, was very interestingly written. And it used um, 
very reliable textual sources from the, the early modern uh, period, so from, from the 17th up to the 19th century, um, mainly um, sources referring to legal cases where women would be prosecuted for dressing up as men. And the book also revealed why, why they did it and, um, and listed a number of, of sort of categories of circumstances that led to, to cross-dressing and becoming women becoming warriors or, or sailors or soldiers. Um, so um, on the one hand, you could have purely economic motivations. So uh, if you have a woman who um, is born in a very unfortunate um, environment, so to say, and uh, comes from a, from a poor family or is an orphan and lives in the streets, back in the day, her only chance to make a living was to become a, a thief or to become a prostitute um, or, or just someone, someone really from this sort of bottom uh, level of the social ladder. Um, so to change her, her life, uh, a woman like this could, uh, could try to simply become a man by dressing up as one and then joining, joining the army or joining uh, the Navy and trying to get a new, new life for, for, for herself. Um, and mind you, this, this has nothing to do with their gender identity or redefining their gender identity. It, it, it's, it's separate from, from all that debate. Um, it's, it was just in many cases done to improve their status. But then again, you could also have, and these are also known cases where women um, would uh, assume uh, masculine roles or clothing or identities uh, because of romantic reasons. So, for instance, if, uh, if a woman wanted to enter a legal relationship with another woman, that the only way to do this was for one of those women to try and pretend they're, they're a man. Um, and then yet another case is where, um, where women become men or dress up as men or become sailors, soldiers, and so on, uh, out of patriotic concerns. Uh, and this is a very broad category or, or, or some sense of obligation. So for instance, they come from a family that has a very strong um, military history and they just want to somehow emulate this and continue this. So, that, so, so you could take those case studies from early modern times and just substitute the certain certain facts and details for those from the Viking Age. And I guess, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, nice, uh, a nice match and a nice parallel. And that kind of helps us understand the, 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 the motivations of Viking Age women as well. And what is interesting, if you look at the um, Old Norse sources that refer to women who become warriors, who dress up as men, who go out and fight. Um, and of course, these sources usually, these, 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 this information usually comes from so-called legendary sagas. So they're filled with all kinds of fantasy. Um, but what, what is interesting is that um, almost all these women come from the, the highest echelons of society. They're, they're part of the elite. They grow up in, in uh, royal or, or very prominent social circles. 
So you could you could argue that they they already kind of are born into a martial society, uh, and they they may have just looked up to their brothers and fathers and thought, oh, that's that's cool. I also want to go on those Viking expeditions all the way to to the east, for instance, and and be a warrior. I want to have this kind of uh, this kind of lifestyle. Um, and I also in 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 studying this topic, I also uh, read quite a lot about modern women from from today's times uh, who who are soldiers who are warriors for example women who who take part in in mixed martial arts events there's quite a lot of them and uh, and I, I kind of read about all their and different motivations and, and that's exactly that they they just think it's cool and they they want to be part of it and that's that's okay right right. That's fascinating, Leszek. Um, no, and I, I definitely um, no. Thank you for for providing that insight. Um, you know, this is something that we see throughout history. Um, you know, certainly as it applies to patriotic obligations. I, I think. Don't quote me, listeners, but during the American Civil War, I believe there was between 500 to 1,000 women who dressed as men uh, simply so that they could fight um, you know, for their state or for their confederacy or, or union, what have you, out of a patriotic concern. Um, Leszek, one of the things I'd like to dive into here is I understand women during the Viking Age often would have uh, a, a significant spiritual role within a community is this an accurate understanding and i think it's especially interesting because as we think about you know uh spiritual or religious roles in the modern period uh, especially in europe in the west these are things that were um you know and even during the middle ages for that fact these were something this was a very you know male dominated arena um so is that accurate? Did women, you know, what was kind of their spiritual role in the Viking Age? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's it's very accurate. And as far as we can tell, based on textual sources and archaeology, it was women who who were central to to this Viking Age um, spirituality broadly understood. Um, one of the sort of iconic figures that you can find in Old Norse texts. Um, or a category of, of, of female ritual specialists is the vulva. That's that's the term used in, in the texts. So the vulva is a sorceress, if you like, uh, someone who can access and communicate with things that are perhaps invisible or things from beyond the, the human realm. Um, and there has been a lot of discussion, of course, about about these individuals. In fact, the the project I'm uh, working on right now at the National Museum in Denmark is all about such uh, such figures. Um, and a lot of researchers working not only on the Viking Age but also broadly and sort of in, in the sphere of comparative studies, um, they they see a lot of parallels between the practices of the völur, that is the plural of velva and their kind, and what is known as shamanism. Um, so there are hints in both archaeology and texts uh, from, from the Nordic sphere um, that Viking Age magic was, you could say, shamanic in one way or another. Uh, and it involved some sort of interactions with the world of the spirits, sending your soul or 
um, sending certain entities to do things for you at a distance, um, um, using the kind of paraphernalia that uh, that shamans used um, in in other cultural contexts, such as such as magic staffs, for instance, or kinds of amulets, um, having animals or animal spirits or animal helpers uh, do things for you. Um, so yeah, so 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 certainly women were were very important, but um, the sources that we have also suggest that women were not the only individuals performing magic in, in the Viking Age. Men could also do this or could perform certain types of magic, although the sources also say that for male performers of magic, this would come with some sort of stigma, so to say. This, this was not always a, an appropriate thing to do. And you may get this impression from, from the sources that the, the honorable way for a man to behave is to go into battle with a sword in hand instead of using sorcery. That's, that's not, it's not the kind of uh, thing a, a man should do. Um, so there are certain accusations in the texts um, uh, directed against men performing sorcery, saying that they are somewhat unmanly, whatever, whatever that means. Yeah, uh, but of course it, we were, we're talking about magic, and that is slightly—it's linked to, but it's also slightly separate from cult or cult practices, or you know, big public performances involving sacrifices or addressing higher gods and so on. And here uh, it seems that in those cases, um, it was often men who 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 uh, had the central role. Um, now, yeah, now, now let's check, um, let's talk about the role of women outside the threshold of the home or farmstead, you know, sort of the, the hearth as it was uh, in, in Viking Age society. You know, we think a lot about exploration. We think about trade and commerce. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about warfare. Is is this something that that women actively uh, had a role in, you know, I mean, there was certainly a lot of significance that came with the role uh, of a woman within the threshold of the home in terms of, you know, being the, the keeper and manager of her family and her estate, um, you know, even work. I know certain scholars have talked about, you know, the significance of, of textile work, as you alluded to, you know, uh, a Viking sail for a long ship was, you know, equally as significant to perhaps the wooden boat itself. Um, but, but yeah, let's talk about the role of women outside the threshold of the house. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is a topic that, that has been discussed for, for years, of course. And, um, but of course, addressed from different perspectives and as scholarly trends change also, you know, our, our, our visions of the past change, um, I think that they were certainly well traveled, so to say, um, because if if we look at the the, the so-called Scandinavian or Viking diaspora, um, if we look at places of Scandinavian activity and settlement outside of Scandinavia, um, you find a lot of evidence for the presence of women in those places. Um, 
the the book that I just that I just finished, the Vikings in Poland. Um, statistically speaking, in this territory, in this part of the world, we have more female-related objects than we have the ob- those objects that are related to men. So, uh, so women were certainly present. They were certainly traveling. They were certainly settling. And I don't think that they were just sort of additional to men uh, and playing some sort of marginal role. Maybe they were actually those who initiated those, uh, those travels. Um, we will never know for sure, but of course we can, we can uh, speculate. Um, well, what, what other activities outs- outside the, the threshold? I mean, you can also think about women in positions of power and mm. for instance, uh, women as, as political leaders or as political advisors. Um, well, they can be doing it from within, within their farmstead, but they can be also doing it on a much wider scale, which would have involved traveling or perhaps supervising certain um, investments in their realm and, and, and so on. Um, yeah, so, so they, they were there, definitely there. They were definitely present. Uh, one thing that we also need to remember is that a lot of, or most uh, of um, the early medieval or Viking Age history that we have, written history, was written from a male perspective. So, of course, certain things uh, are left out in, in, in such narratives because, because of the agendas of those who are commissioning those texts and producing those texts. Right, right. Now, Leszek, this is a good segue. So let's let's talk about the Vikings in Poland, the topic of a book that you've just finished. Um, Poland is not one of the countries that I think typically comes to mind when we talk about the Viking Age. People think of the Scandinavian countries, Iceland, uh, maybe even Russia, um, you know, the Byzantine Empire, you know, that sort of thing, um, the New World. But Poland, the Vikings in Poland, um, I, I must confess, this is not a subject that I'm well versed in. So, Leszek, why don't you set the stage for us, introduce us to, you know, the Vikings in Poland? Hmm. Well, I, I, I should probably begin by by saying that this is a book that I've always wanted to write. It's uh, mm. it's probably my most important book, and uh, and maybe wow. maybe the best I've written. I'd like to think so. At least I, I put a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of heart into it. And uh, I began sowing the seeds for for this book twenty years ago. So it's been a long time in the making. Um, and of course, it's it's, uh, it's, it's it's you have to say it's a very personal book because I'm Polish and I come from from that part of the world. Um, so as a as a kid I, and, and, a, and a young teenager and a young student, I always uh, found it really fascinating whenever I found information about Viking Age finds in, in my home country or stories in the sagas and, and other medieval texts referring to Scandinavian Slavic connections. So it's uh, writing this book is a, is a sort of a life's mission or something for me. Um, but yeah, to, 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 to be a bit more, more uh, serious now and, uh, and, and academic about it, um, you're absolutely right. The, the area of Poland is not uh, something that immediately springs to mind when, when you think about uh, uh, the Vikings. And uh, in some regards, I can, I can, of course, understand that. This was perhaps not 
been thinking about their expansion and their voyages and their raids and so on, this was probably not the, the main sort of uh, uh, direction, but the connections were there. And uh, in looking at archaeology and texts, we can now say that these connections were pretty strong. Um, and this is what, what my book is trying to, to, to reveal and discuss. Um, in fact, the, the scholarly interest in the Vikings in Poland is not a, a new thing. There have been many people before me who have in one way or another addressed this topic. And uh, the history of, of, of research on Scandinavians in Poland or Vikings in Poland goes goes back all the way to the 18th century. That's that's when some of the 18th and 19th century, that's when some of the, the earliest publications on the topic um, came out. And of course, in the, in the 19th uh, century, uh, a lot of these works were sort of written in the national romantic spirit. Um, and you have to also set this in, into perspective. Uh, 19th century Poland did not really exist as a, as a sovereign state. It was uh, divided among several European superpowers, um, Habsburg, Austria, um, Prussia, and Russia. So Poles existed as a, as, a, as a nation, but they lived under, you could say, foreign occupation. And, uh, and people of... Uh, of uh, um, universities or people who, who had an interest in history began looking to the North and to the Old Norse sagas. And in those sagas, they, they found this kind of ideal model of a, of a free farmer's society. Um, and, and that really spoke to their imagination. And that is the kind of, uh, a reflection was a reflection of their longings for an independent state and the rebirth of an independent state. And so how, that's, that's how the interest was born. And then um, in the years that followed and um, after, the, um, after the regaining of independence uh, after the First World War, um, the, the research on the presence of Vikings in Poland uh, acquired a whole new um, uh, shape um, where um, researchers began to, to look not only at texts, but also at archaeology, and people would be finding uh, Scandinavian-style objects all around, uh, all around Poland. Um, and this, this has been going on basically to this, to this very day. Um, there is quite a lot of material to work with. Um, the strongest traces of Scandinavian presence in Poland that we have are in basically two regions. So uh, one of them is Pomerania, that is the region located along the Southern Baltic uh, coast. And to some of your, your um, listeners of, of the podcast, the, the place known as Volin or Jomsborg probably rings a bell. And this is a place that is mentioned in a, in a number of uh, medieval texts, and there's even a saga called the Jomsvikinga saga that, that speaks about Jomsborg. And according to the saga, Jomsborg was a Scandinavian Viking fortress built somewhere on the southern Baltic coast, presumably in the territory of what is today Poland, um, by permission of 
the Polish ruler called Burislafer. So probably Mieszko I or Bolesław the Brave, the one of the first Piast rulers. And as the, the saga tells us, uh, Jomsborg was a fortress that housed a brotherhood of warriors, the so-called Joms Vikings, who, who lived according to a very strict code of behavior. They would never flee from the battlefield. And even if the enemy was stronger, they would always stand their ground. Um, they, they, they had a very sort of formed a very democratic society. They always divided their loot equally. Uh, there was a very strict selection process to, to become a Yom's Viking. You had to really prove your worth in, in, in combat. Uh, so a sort of elite warrior brotherhood, if you like. And uh, it's interesting because the, the Yom's Viking saga actually clearly emphasizes at one point, uh, it says that they were the, the best warriors of their time. The problem is we don't actually know if, if there's any truth in the story uh, because... Uh, after, during the Second World War and after the Second World War, and also before the Second World War, actually, a lot of researchers were, were desperately trying to find uh, actual traces of this fortress, especially in, in the town of Volin. And they never found anything. They, were, they never found any, anything convincing enough to say that a, that a fortress like this actually existed. I'd like to believe that it did. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but I cannot prove it, unfortunately. Um, but of course, there's always a, some grain of truth in the legend. Um, but what we do have, uh, and what is pretty well confirmed, is that Volin was a very prominent port of trade uh, close to the Baltic coast. It's not directly uh, on the coast, but it's, it's some kilometers away from the coast at a, at a river. Um, and what we do know is that Scandinavian presence in Volin, in Volin was, was pretty strong. And we can see it through the archaeology of the town, where we have Scandinavian-style objects, objects that were either imported from the north or produced on the site by Scandinavian craftsmen, or at least by craftsmen influenced by Scandinavian traditions. So this is a, this is a very uh, important point on the map. Uh, of this part of the world in the Viking Age. And then if we move further to the east along uh, the coast, we will eventually come to a place known as Truso. Now, Truso was another port of trade with a slightly uh, older date. It was established before uh, Volin uh, rose to, to prominence. And this place Truso was uh, most likely established by Scandinavians from what is today Denmark. And we can say this with some confidence because the, the material culture uh, recovered as a result of archaeological excavations looks very Danish. Uh, and also, in some regards, we have some, some objects that stemmed from uh, most likely Gotland or, or, or southern and central Sweden. And so there are, there are several sort of waves of influences here. Um, so these are, these are the, the, the core places of Scandinavian presence. But then almost midway between Volin and Truso, there is also a, a very interesting site um, with, a, with a name difficult to pronounce. It's called Um It's near today's Kołobrzeg, 
um, so in, in uh, sort of central Pomerania. Um, and this site is a burial ground with around 100 burial mounds, um, both cremations and inhumations in those mounds. But what is interesting about this site, there's a considerable number of graves with diagnostically Scandinavian-style jewelry, and it's female jewelry. So uh, as I said earlier, when, we, when we're looking at um, migrants and settlers outside of the Scandinavian world, we, we often find women. And here it's a cemetery where actually most of the Scandi material from the site is linked to women. So we have uh, graves with oval brooches, with a trefoil brooch, with, uh, with chains, with uh, beads, with uh, needle cases. And a couple of graves also contain weights. Uh, and that is a very interesting signal suggesting that these people were well, doing something with those weights or scales that they were probably trading and exchanging um, some goods, maybe producing some goods. Um, not far from Svielubie is an area known for its salt pans. So it is quite likely that those who came to this, to this part of Pomerania uh, were interested in the salt trade or were in one way or another involved in the salt trade. Um, so that, that gives us some hints about their, their professions, their occupations. Um, but what is interesting to and important to emphasize, this area known as Pomerania um, in the Viking Age for a considerably long time maintained its sort of um, unique and separate status from what was happening further to the south uh, in an area known as Greater Poland. And the area known as Greater Poland, which is kind of around the city of today's Poznań, um, was the place where the Piast state was born. And the Piasts were the first ruling, historically kind of confirmed uh, ruling dynasty of Poland. Um, so this, in the 10th, late 10th century, early 11th century, several uh, ambitious individuals from this area were trying to build a state to, to create something new. Uh, and one of them was the aforementioned Mieszko and then his son Bolesław the Brave. And they were both also trying very hard and with some success to gain control over Pomerania. Because of course, for an emerging state in this part of Europe, it's important to have access to the sea because that opens up your state to the whole bigger, wider world. And, um, and what is interesting is that um, both archaeology and texts show that there existed strong dynastic and political uh, and socio-political connections between the Piast state and Scandinavia, especially Denmark. And uh, this is something I'm, I'm also researching right now, um, especially in looking both at whatever texts we have, but also at archaeology. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at certain categories of archaeological finds that appear both in Greater Poland and in Denmark. And I can see that, the, that there were connections and links going both ways. So we find objects evidently from Greater Poland and Denmark, and then objects from Denmark uh, from the time of Harald Bluetooth in Greater Poland and in Pomerania. Uh, and these are not just any objects. These are objects of the highest quality, of the highest uh, um, 
artistic sort of beauty, um, jewelry, weaponry, and so on. So, uh, so this confirms some form of cultural transfer and some form of cultural interaction at the highest uh, levels of society. Um, if we look at, if we look at uh, the reign of Harald Bluetooth uh, and his son, uh, Svein Forkbeard, they were actually both uh, closely uh, associated with uh, and personally associated with, with the Western Slavic world because they both had Slavic wives. Um, Harald Bluetooth, as we know, had a wife called Tova or Tofa, who was the daughter of a, of a Polabian or Obodrite um, chieftain known as Mistivoy. Uh, that is the area of present-day northwestern Germany. That's, that's where she came from. But back in the day, this was Slavic territory. So he was married to a, to a woman from, from that cultural area and from... Uh, from that part of the world. And Svein Forkbeard uh, most likely was married to the daughter of Mieszko I. And this woman then gave him, uh, gave him a son who in history is known as Knut the Great. So uh, that's someone we don't have to introduce. Um, but this also shows that these links between Scandinavia and the specifically Polish or Piast world were very strong. If, if, if both sides thought it was worthy or important or interesting to, to intermarry and to establish these, these kinds of alliances. Um, so there's a lot of potential in this, in this uh, part of the world and in this line of research. And um, what I did in this book is I, I kind of tried to, to bring everything we know about this um, together and uh, and fill a certain blank space on the map of the Viking world. Certainly, certainly. Well, uh, Leszek, remind us, so first of all, remind us when the book will be published and when it is where listeners can get a copy. Um, yeah, so the, the, the process is twofold uh, because the book is, is written as a monograph, but it's also written as my habilitation thesis. So uh, the habilitation is... Uh, is, is a, a process in certain European countries, Poland, Germany, uh, which gives you the sort of highest academic uh, qualifications, uh, opening up the path to a full professorship. And so, uh, so the book is under review um, right now as a, as a habilitation uh, thesis at the uh, Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. And hopefully, after the, the positive review, the, the book will be released by Routledge um, in their uh, uh, Routledge Archaeologies of the Viking World series uh, in 2023. So this is, wow. this is where you can, you can find the book. Well, that's very exciting. Well, Leszek Ardella, I'm so glad we could get you back on the podcast. Um, I know we've been, this conversation has been a long time coming, but I'm so grateful for you taking the time to speak with us today. I'll include a link to your academia.edu profile, a link to Women and Weapons in the Viking World, your first book that we discussed. And uh, certainly, um, you know, I'll keep listeners informed as it relates to your upcoming book, The Vikings in Poland. But Leszek, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure and I, I hope we can do it again at some point. Absolutely, absolutely and likewise.
Thank you, listeners, for listening to the History of Vikings podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite platform of choice. Join us here again for another episode. 